Hey guys, welcome to episode 79 of A True Crime Couple. I'm Kay. And I'm John. So we want to wish everyone a happy Father's Day because this episode is being dropped on Father's Day. So Happy Father's Day, everybody. Yes. To all the fathers out there, however you may be fathers. And to everyone who's lost a father, this day sometimes can be a little hard. But Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So we want to, just before we get started, make it known that we're going to thank our Patreons at the end of this episode. We have a lot of new Patreons and we want to thank them accordingly. Plus, you know, this podcast would be nothing without our supporters. Yeah, it's true. I mean, where would we be be without you guys, to be honest? I know, listeners, supporters. So we just always love sharing the love and thanking you for everything you do, including leaving reviews. That's always so helpful. And just spreading the word about this podcast. So we we really appreciate that. And if you are looking to join our Patreon page, you can do so at patreon.com slash true crime couple. We actually just released an episode on Savannah Greywind, and that's our 26th episode that we actually have available on uh, Patreon. Yeah, so join the family, guys. Yes, that would be really nice. So in today's episode, we will be celebrating Christmas in June as we travel back to the Christmas of 1990, where the extended Tita family had a beautiful wood cabin in the secluded backcountry of Summit County, Utah. The family usually gathered at this location throughout the summer months, but they made a point to always visit around Christmas time. But this year, as the members of the close-knit family made their way towards the cabin that's actually only accessible by snowmobile, they find out that two men have been waiting for them to arrive. And what the Tita family thought was going to be their Christmas vacation turned quickly into a fight for survival. Police say the suspect, 31-year-old Jeffrey Dahmer, has confessed to the killings of 11 people whose remains were found in his apartment. We are all evil in some form or another, are we not? Lock your doors, lock your windows. If you have the ability to provide additional security devices, then by all means do so. The sign in the entry gates to the Tita cabin read Tita's Tranquility, and each member of the family couldn't help but smile each time they passed it. The cabin, deep in the mountainous woods, was home to so many of the young Tita cousins' memories. They would spend the summers exploring the woods, fishing, and creating their own adventures. Located all around the country, the extended family really could only get together at this location because it was the one location that fit them all. So they always tried to take full advantage of this property. But it was in the wintertime, in the bitter cold, that the cabin meant something magical to the children. The cabin was perched on a mountain, up a slanted driveway. Its large, peaked, floor-to-ceiling windows provided breathtaking views of the snow-capped mountains that surrounded them. A large deck also provided them with the same views. See, I always think that's really cool because when someone kind of picked, like, we get a picture of someone's, like, perfect getaway, and they're always talking about, like, the sun and the ocean and all this stuff, right? That's great. Cool. Me, it's this cabin, most likely. A cabin in the woods. Yeah, like, I'm always, I'm a big fan of, like, Colorado, like, cabin somewhere. Okay. You know, it's like snowing. You got the fireplace going. It's very roomy. It's cozy. It's cozy. Exactly. Yeah, that'd be nice. Maybe some hot chocolate, throw in some marshmallows. Wow. You would fit right in here. This is your place. Maybe like a little blanket so I could like (laughs) sit on a couch. It'd be great. (laughs) So in the winter months, this cabin was a lot more secluded than it was in the summertime. So you can imagine, especially for children, that kind of like transforms what a location is. When, oh, yeah. When you can only get to something by snowmobile, it becomes this, like... Adventure? Magical secret place. Yeah. yeah. During the winter of 1990, the first Tita family members arrived at the cabin. And, of course, there's going to be, like, three to four separate families that usually make their way up to the cabin around Christmas time. But our story is going to focus around the Tita family where the parents are Ralph and Kay, is actually the mother's name. Okay. So... They are from Houston, Texas, and they're going to arrive a little bit early this Christmas. 
Rolf and Kay, who were 61 and 49 years old, respectively, um, as well as their two daughters, 20-year-old Lene and 16-year-old Trisha, had arrived on December 19th, earlier than all the other members. But that was because they had to travel to Salt Lake City on the 20th to pick up Kay's mother. So usually it's Rolf's side of the family that gathers at the cabin. But what had happened recently was that Kay's mother had been in a car accident and she had been pretty injured by it and she was beginning to slow down and the family was noticing that she wasn't really herself. So they wanted to spend as many holidays as they could possibly together. So they were going to go pick up Kay's mother at the airport in Salt Lake City and kind of like gather provisions and stuff. So the family on the 19th is going to unpack all of their bags and leave their presents underneath the Christmas tree before they set out to pick up Kay's mother, who was 72-year-old Beth Potts. Once they pick up their grandmother, the family actually is going to split up. Lene and her mother are going to load up two snowmobiles and head directly to the cabin with all the provisions that they had picked up from Salt Lake City. Lene drove one of the snowmobiles while Beth sat on the back of the other snowmobile um, behind her daughter who was driving. One of the snowmobiles had to be repaired, so that's what Rolf and Trisha were going to take care of. They were actually going to go into town to a snowmobile repair shop, and they were going to pick up any last-minute provisions that they might need from town. As the three women got closer to the cabin, they had no idea what awaited them. On December 14th, Vaughn Taylor, who was 25, and Edward Deli, who was 21, had just walked out of their Orange Street halfway house that they had been living in together. The two had agreed that they had been bored and tired of all the rules that they had to follow. They were ready to have some fun. Taylor's family had owned a cabin not far from where the Tita's cabin was. He said that where his family used to own property, there were so many cabins and that they would all mostly be empty because they were seasonal. So with a big storm coming, it would be perfect to hide out in those cabins. It's so funny because sometimes we cover these cases and it seems like the weather is like mimicking the storm that's coming with the criminals that it's are true. arriving. Yeah, no, it's true. And it, it's like this perfect storm of like, you know, this perfect storm you have, you know, you're traveling by... Um, snowmobile to get there it's super secluded it's like the shining yeah right and it's like now it's like you're so far away from anybody that no one could really help you but the people that you're with right it's it's pretty terrifying yeah taylor and delhi from december 14th to december 20th vandalized nine abandoned cabins in the area the boys both convicted felons are the kind of people that you wish just never would have met Taylor was a self-proclaimed Satan worshiper. Um, don't forget, this is 1990, so it's we're really like kind of smack dab in the middle of the satanic panic. If there's anything you could ever do to scare any type of authority figure, it would be to say that you were a Satan worshiper. Yeah, or just scare anybody for that matter. If I <laughs> yeah. heard that, I'd go. I'd walk the other way. Well, even now, but especially during the satanic panic, because people were believing that this stuff was completely real because of like the false narrative that was being given to the country at the time. And it's pretty clear that Von Taylor was in no way a Satan worshiper, but him saying that kind of made people scared of him. Right. And Delhi had just gotten out of prison for a five-year sentence for arson. So the two are a very dangerous pair. It seemed that Delhi was quite literally the fire to Taylor's gasoline. Yeah, sometimes when you put people together... It makes it a hell of a lot worse. Yes, yes. But on the 20th, Taylor and Deli spotted the Tita family leaving their property from one of the cabins, one of the larger cabins. And Taylor decided that it was this cabin that they needed to go to next. And this is for many reasons, of course. They've been staying in abandoned cabins for about six days now. So an abandoned cabin really is just and I don't mean like abandoned, just like the family's not there. So at most, the things that they're going to have in their pantry are going to be canned goods that can last long periods of time. So they're pretty hungry at this point. They don't have any money and they needed somewhere to stay that was warm because the weather was getting really cold. So this cabin that had just been occupied looks like a pretty good idea. 
They also felt like they needed to move on from this space because eventually people are going to find out that cabins have been vandalized because they've done nine at this point already. So their plan was to go to the Tita house, kind of stay there, eat, do whatever they could. And then when the family returned, they were going to hijack the snowmobiles in hopes of getting to an actual vehicle that would get them further away. Yeah, it's pretty wild. I mean, it's just like a weird circumstance that like that family just happens to be there and now they're just kind of cabin jumping yeah it's it's pretty crazy so when taylor and deli got into the tita cabin they found a fully stocked refrigerator and pantry ready for a christmas party and feast i mean think about how much food has to be there even if people are bringing their own provisions you still have to have enough food that's gonna like feed like 20 people so yeah, feed 20 people. And then also on top of that, we don't know how long they're going to be there. Right. Like, I mean, you got to think they got there, what, in the 19th. So, I mean, you got a couple days before Christmas on its own. And then you have whatever they're going to stay after. Yeah, most likely they stay till New Year's. So right. they stay so, there for a whole week. So you need a lot. Yes. There were also presents beneath the Christmas tree that Rolf and Kay had left for their daughters, nieces, nephews, and siblings. The two rejoiced in their luck. They got to stay here in what seemed like paradise compared to the other cabins, and they patiently waited for the family's return. However, like we said before, the Titas were actually away for the night in Salt Lake City. Taylor and Deli made the most of their time alone. They ate food, drank sodas and alcohol, and they made a complete mess of the cabin. Deli had found a video recorder and popped in a VHS tape that was already labeled Christmas of 1990. Um, the Tita family made a point of always videotaping their Christmases, and um, Rolf liked to videotape, and so did Kay, their drive up there on the snowmobile. So that's what had been recorded already. Come on, these guys are so ruthless, man. They're eating all the food, drinking all the alcohol, and now you're, like, wasting the tape on that thing, man. <laughs> I know. Like, that's not cool. Like, real-life Grinches. Yeah, right? <laughs> So they ended up taping over some of the footage that already existed on the VHS. He recorded Von Taylor opening up the presents that were located underneath the Christmas tree. They unwrapped deer hunting rifles, but no ammo, thank God, baseball and football cards, and photo albums. At one point, Taylor is looking through a photo album, and he comes upon a picture of Lene Tita. He looked directly into the lens, and he said, Lene Cheetah, and he raised his eyebrows. His intentions for the young girl cemented on film. It wasn't until 12.30 p.m. the following day on December 21st that Taylor and Deli heard the sounds of approaching snowmobiles. Lene, Kay, and Beth had arrived at the cabin, of course, because Rolf and Trisha were getting the snowmobile fixed. During the ride back to the cabin, Lene was freezing. Of course, because it was unbelievably cold, but also because her gloves were not thick enough and her hands in particular had begun to feel numb, which is dangerous because, you know, it could be hypothermia. So while her mother and her grandmother were kind of slowly getting off the snowmobile and taking the provisions off of the sled and bringing them into the garage, she yelled to them that she was going to run up in the house and put her hand under some lukewarm water and then come back down and help. So when she ran up the stairs from the garage to the main cabin, she opens the door and she remembered seeing something gray flash before her eyes. And she got excited because she thought for a second, like her cousins had come to the cabin really early. But her excitement quickly drained when a man with frizzy hair came out from hiding with a gun pointed directly at her. It was Taylor. He demanded that she sit down on the couch. Then a second man wearing glasses who was Deli, came out of hiding as well. They asked her who she was with, and she admitted that her grandmother and mother were with her. Taylor ordered Deli to go get them. And minutes later, the women were ushered into the living room as well. Beth was ordered to sit on a bar stool, which was located behind her granddaughter, and Kay was told to stand directly in front of her daughter. Kay began to plead for all of their lives. She told them that she would do whatever they wanted or give them whatever they needed as long as they just left everyone alone. She told them she could give them money. She didn't have cash, but she could write a check. 
and while her mother pleaded with the two men, Lene noticed that the cabin was a mess, that they had opened all of the Christmas gifts, and it was clear that the two men had been there for a while. She looked up at her mother, again, who was begging Taylor at this point to take whatever they wanted and to please leave them alone. That was when Taylor fired a shot at point-blank range at her chest. Kay grabbed her chest and yelled that she had been shot, and Lene watched her mother fall backwards to the ground, dead before she even hit the floor. Wow, that's that's insane. Right in front of her. Right in front of her. Now, was this gun the gun that they unwrapped? No, this is um the two men. They have two handguns that they brought with them. So I think these are handguns that they must have gotten from one of the cabins that they were in. Okay. Because I can't imagine them being allowed to have guns at a halfway house. Right, right. So I think this is something that they had accrued during their vandalization period. But the um the deer rifles, the hunting rifles, they didn't have any ammo with them as the gift. So obviously because... That's the safe way to give a, a gun as a present is yeah, to not yeah. wrap the ammo with it. <laughs> or don't have it fully loaded and wrap it. So, yeah, right, right. That's good. So it's not those weapons. So as soon as Kay is going to hit the floor, Lene said the room lit up like fireworks as Taylor kind of just continuously shot his gun. She covered her ears and screamed, trying to get as low as she could on the couch. She turned around to check on her grandmother and saw that she was slumped down at the bar. Blood spatter surrounded her. She had been shot in the face twice and was unrecognizable. Lene was shocked about how just completely nonchalant Taylor was about the murders that were just committed. I mean, her mother is laying dead before her. Her grandmother quite literally has had her face blown off and is slumped at the bar. And Taylor, zero reaction. I mean, that's pretty crazy because, I mean, it doesn't like he wasn't in prison for any acts of violence, right? It was a violent crime, but it wasn't murder. Right. I mean, yeah. so it's kind of weird. It was just burglary. Yeah. So it's kind of weird how someone can go from that to like straight up murder and not care. It's it's very strange, but I think we're going to realize um, throughout this whole event that Taylor's mentally unstable. Okay. Yeah. And he's he's definitely the ringleader here. So Lene was unable to comprehend the situation. All she could think to do was pray. So she just kept saying, please, God, I don't want to die. And Von Taylor got into her face and told her that her praying wasn't going to work, that he only answered to Satan. So, again, a very terrifying statement. As the two men talked about what was going to happen next, Lene noticed how quiet it was and wondered why her life had been spared and what was the plan for her. Now, I'm sure as Lene is in this situation and she's thinking, what is going on? It seems like this guy, these guys like kind of like have a plan. But in reality, they don't have a plan. And everything they're going to do is going to make no sense. Like, why are they going to kill two people, but then not her? Like, it's just nothing makes sense that they're doing. Right. But I think that's the most terrifying is the fact that there is no plan. There's... You know, so anything that could happen will. Right. When you're being held by someone that is unpredictable, that's a little bit more scary. Oh, my God. Yeah. So back in town, Trisha had told her father that, and this is like one of those weird, like telepathic moments. She told her father there's something wrong back at the cabin. And Rolf really, he just loved his daughters and they were great daughters to him back as well. And He wanted to make Trisha feel better, so he said, okay, well, let's call the cabin. So they called the cabin, and the phone just kept ringing and ringing, and nobody was picking up. So back at the cabin, Lene is going to say the phone was ringing, and Taylor and Deli didn't want to pick it up, but Taylor was getting very agitated by the phone continuously ringing, so he ripped it off of the wall. So Trisha's going to say to her father, that's weird. The phone, like, it just kind of, like, went dead. So they tried the cabin one more time, and it was just, like, that busy tone that you got in 1990. Like, the phone's just not working. Like, it's off the hook. Yeah. So they're like, okay, there's definitely something wrong at the cabin. So the two don't go into town to get more provisions. They actually head right back to the cabin. And at this point, Lene has already been alone with the two men for two hours. That's a while. It's a long time. I I can imagine that felt like a lifetime. 
And you got to think they're coming all the way from that town. It's going to take a while to get back. Right. So in the house, Lene was begging for the men to just let her go. She was telling them that they had already killed two people and that they didn't want to kill her too. She promised that she wouldn't tell anyone what they looked like or what happened. They told her that she knew too much already and that they would have to kill her or take her with them. Deli told Taylor that their fingerprints were everywhere and that in order to get rid of that evidence, they would have to burn the whole cabin down. That's just his arson obsession. Yeah, usually when people are arsons, they're obsessed with fire, so that tends to be the, the answer for them. It's like, oh, um, you know, what can we do here? Oh, just burn it, by, you know, just let's use fire and burn it. Like, like it just gives them a reason to do it, or even just to say it. Just to play with fire. Yeah. yeah. Well, Taylor agreed, and... In st- okay, so this is one of the weirdest things that I think they do, right? So say you're a killer. I know, it's weird. Say that you're these two guys, right? Okay. And Deli just came up with the idea, let's get rid of all of the evidence and burn the cabin down. You would think you would want to burn the bodies as well, correct? Correct. Not Taylor. Taylor has this bright idea, okay, let's move the bodies to the deck where they're not going to burn. I don't understand why you would do that. I this It makes zero sense to me. But then again, we're not killers. We're not killers. And this just like proves like what I said before is like he has zero plan and I feel like zero criminal knowledge whatsoever. Right. It's just this impulsive. Like I think he's really try- at this point he's trying to show off like his like callous attitude, you know? Right. Exactly. I mean, th- I mean, look how far they've already gone already. Where, the, you know, they already killed people. They just want to make it more grandiose. Right. And they want to make it as crazy as possible. So, of course, Taylor himself isn't going to move the bodies to the deck. So he tells Deli to do so. Um, before he moves the bodies to the deck, Deli is going to cover them with blankets. And he dragged them through the sliding glass door. At one point, um, Deli's going to actually ask Taylor for help because the bodies were too heavy for him to just drag. And Lene watched in horror as her beloved mother and grandmother were carried outside. Once they had the bodies outside, Taylor came back into the house and he vomited. To try and get him talking again, because she had heard that like when you're kept hostage or like captive, the best thing to do is to try and make the person that is holding you captive like like you or like make you aware that you're a person so she was trying to like engage him in conversation and she asked if um he had gotten sick and he said yeah i i did because i had to shoot the bitch twice in the face and she's disgusting so i mean that was not the response that Lene thought she was going to to hear and you know to hear someone speak so vulgarly about their poor grandmother who was already having a rough go of things and then was shot right in front of her and then she had to watch her body be dragged out it's like he just has zero zero regret zero regret you have to put yourself in the mind of Lene. you know here she is trying to make them feel comfortable and kind of befriend them and everything like that but you have to understand how hard that must be because here you are trying to do this and you just watch your mom get shot and your grandmother get like obliterated yeah. And then to hear that comment, I don't know how you would continue to do that. It would be it's yeah. like almost impossible because you're thinking, you know, how could they? Oh my god, that's my family. So that's really hard. Yes, to show the restraint to not react to that because I mean, I think her survival mode's kind of kicking in here where it's like I have to preserve myself and act like that comment didn't cut me. Yeah. Exactly. So Because it was so cold outside, as the bodies were taken outside, they began to freeze immediately. Which, again, you're just preserving the evidence. Like, they're just... Well, there is no DNA evidence right now at this time in 1990. But it's like, literally every criminal mistake that they could make, they are just doing it. Yeah, because there's no plan. Right, they could write a book, like, how not to commit a crime. Yeah. How to get caught. Yeah. So, um... It was actually so cold outside that as the blood from their bodies, I know this is kind of like gross. I hope you guys aren't eating. As Don't eat while you're listening to this. That'd be weird. <laughs> I hope you're not eating. So as their blood is dripping from the deck, it's actually freezing into icicles. That's crazy. So there's like blood icicles beneath the deck. And just so you know, I, 
I do eat while I edit the podcast. So. Oh yeah, that's right. You do. I that's do. So weird. It, well, I have to. I, I'm trying to multitask. Okay. So do I get a pass? I guess. Okay, you guys, <laughs> you let me know if I get a pass. So Lene was fearful now, not just for herself, but she knew that her father and sister were due back at any time, and they had no idea what had happened. So she knew Taylor and Deli were talking about leaving. So. She knew, obviously, she wasn't going to convince them to let her go. So she just began trying to convince them to, to leave as quickly as possible so they can get out of there before her father and her sister arrive. So um, in her mind, she's thinking, I just have to speed up this process and things will be OK and I'll save them. So finally, Taylor is satisfied with the state of the scene and he told Lene to pack a bag that they were leaving. So she packed as quickly as she possibly could, and the three of them geared up for what was to be a frigid ride off of the property and out of the canyon. So as they were headed down the stairs to the garage, Lene heard the worst sound imaginable, approaching snowmobiles. Rolf and Trisha had cut their time in town short because they had received no answer when the busy signal came on the telephone line to the cabin. As soon as the pair got off their vehicles, a tall man who had to be over six feet tall, now that is Taylor, he's going to jump out from behind the garage. He was wearing a black ski mask and he was holding a handgun. He yelled at them to get inside. Startled, they listened to the man. Trisha remembered thinking to herself, this has to be a joke. Maybe it was one of her cousins because one of her cousins was that tall as well. But unfortunately, the reality set in for her and her and her father walked into the garage and they were confronted by a horrible scene. Her older sister, Lene, was being held by a shorter man wearing glasses who had a gun pointed to her head. At this point, Lene is in hysterics. She, unlike her father and sister, knew what these men were capable of. They had immediately killed her mother and grandmother, so she believed that they were going to do the same to her father, right, if they were to follow the pattern. As Rolf Tita processed the scene, he slowly came to the realization that he needed to act. While in the back of his mind, he worried about his wife and mother-in-law. Rolf immediately took the money clip that he had from his pocket and threw it towards them. There was $105 in it. He told them to take it. Please, he begged, don't hurt my family. Taylor instructed Rolf to take off his snowsuit. So this is a bad sign because obviously he doesn't want to shoot the man through his snowsuit because that would slow down the, the bullet yeah so it's it's a terrifying command to have to hear taylor screamed at delhi to shoot him now this is interesting because delhi at this point has not killed anyone it was taylor who shot Kay and her mother so i think now what he wants to do is imply delhi into these crimes just as much as he is right exactly i mean because you want I mean, if both of them are doing it, they want each other to equally share the responsibility, responsibility of it all. Yes, I, I agree with that. So Deli is going to move his gun from Linnea's head, and he pointed it straight at her father. His hand shook with a fury as he pulled the hammer back. Rolf instinctively put his hand up to shield himself, and with the other arm, he pushed Trisha as far away from him as possible. But nothing happened. Taylor continued to shout at Deli to shoot him, but he couldn't. Frustrated, Taylor pulled out his own gun and pulled the trigger right away, but the gun backfired. He shot again and nothing, but the third round did go off, and it hit Ralph Tita in the head in front of his two daughters. Horrified at what had happened, the girls screamed, and despite the fact that the two men had guns around them, they made a mad dash for each other. They embraced tighter than they ever had before. She's dead, Trisha asked, and her sister shook her head yes. Graham and Lene shook her head no again, just telling her sister that another family member was dead. So now Trisha's completely up to speed that everyone they came there with, everyone they loved is, is dead. It's just the two of them now. Taylor and Deli told the girls that they were ready to leave and that they were going with them. Taylor told Deli to wait with the two girls while he finished things off in the cabin. So as he walked past Ralph Tita in the garage, he callously shot him in the head one more time, right kind of like at the side of his face. This caused the girls to continue sobbing, but Taylor paid no attention to their cries as he picked up a canister of gasoline and poured it all over their father. He then climbed the stairs and went into the cabin. 
He was pouring gasoline all around the living room and kitchen, where he and Deli spent most of their time. He lit a match and dropped it on the floor. There was an initial flash of ignition, and Taylor ran out of the house. Come on, he yelled to Deli and the frantic girls. We have to go before it blows. The men told the girls that they were to drive the snowmobiles because they didn't trust them not to jump off the back. So Taylor got on the back of Trisha's snowmobile and Deli on the back of Linnae's. With guns pressed against their back, the girls drove away from the cabin and the bodies of their parents and grandmother and towards the sign that had always greeted them at the entryway of the property. As they are driving down the mountain, each girl thinks that there is no one that is going to help them. Because of the isolation of the cabin, no one even knew this was happening. Trisha thought about making a quick turn and throwing Taylor from her snowmobile. It would be easy, but then she didn't know what Deli would do to her sister. So she chose to play it safe. All the while, Linnae was just thinking, I have to keep Trisha in my sights at all times. So Trisha was in the snowmobile ahead, so Linnae just tried to stay as close as possible to her because she just did not want to lose sight of her sister. I mean, at this point, she is in shock from everything that she had just seen. So as the girls approached the gate that marked the entryway to the Tita cabin, they noticed someone was there. It was their uncle Randy, their father's brother. So Randy, who was, he was loading up his snowmobile kind of sleigh, sled thing to take up to the cabin from his car. And he noticed the snowmobiles approaching and he knew right away those were his brother's snowmobiles. So he was looking out and he was kind of like waving to them as they approached because he didn't know who exactly it was, but he knew it was his family coming towards him. So as the girls got closer, he noticed that his nieces were driving, but he couldn't think who would be on the back with his nieces driving. So he just like kind of continued to enthusiastically wave at them and they drove right past him without even looking at him. And then that's when he noticed there was two, like, younger men on the snowmobiles behind them. So he thought this was really weird because obviously his brother and sister-in-law would have told him if, like, the girls had boyfriends and they were bringing them to the cabin for Christmas. So he didn't know who these two guys were. And as they drove past Randy, who was waving at them like he knew them, Taylor and Deli are going to ask the girls who that was. And they said they had no idea. It must be someone who recognized them from living in the cabins. And that seemed to satisfy them. So it seemed like they were out of the woods when it came to that. So Randy is going to think this is a little strange. So he knows where his brother parks his car. And he kind of like walks towards that area. And that's where the girls have taken the snowmobile because... The girls knew that their father left the key under the mat of his town car. So the guys had said they wanted to find a way out of there into a car. So that's where they were leading them to. And the whole time, Randy's kind of watching this scene go down. So he's staying a little far back because he doesn't know what to think of it. And he doesn't want to be too intrusive. But he does recognize that it was very bizarre. And the girls purposely did not look at Randy because the last thing they wanted to do was be responsible for his death. Right, which makes sense. I mean, look how many people have already been murdered. Right. So they take Taylor and Deli to their father's town car and they get the key from under the front mat and give it to them. So they force the girls into the car in the same pairings that they did with the snowmobiles where Trisha was in the front seat with Taylor and Deli was in the back with Lene. And... At one point, Deli is going to pull out a knife and he comments to Trisha, who's in the front seat, um, don't worry, I'm just as good as I'm just as good with a knife as I am with a gun. And then Trisha kind of like says back to him because she seems to be the one that has a little bit more of like, I guess, an attitude with the two guys. And she says, oh, really? Then that must not be good at all, you know, because he hasn't even shot the gun yet. Right. So it's like, who are you to try to act tough in front of us? You know what I mean? So I think they kind of had Deli's number a little bit. So they begin driving away from the scene. And this is when Randy's going to approach the vehicle because he knows like something is really off here. Something's wrong. So at this point, Randy is running towards the, t- the town car 
and the girls are in the car with the two the two men. Lene wants to yell out to her uncle, but she can't, right? She's scared. And what Trisha is doing in the front seat is she kind of has her hands in front of the warmers of the car and she's waving them a little bit, thinking that, okay, maybe this might get my uncle's attention. And then at the last second, she looks over at him and makes sure that she makes eye contact with him and makes sure that her face is very solemn and very serious. Like that was the only way she could ask for help from him. I mean, that's pretty smart. Yeah. Because anything else, you know, they're going to act on it. They're going to get out of the car. They could possibly shoot him, stab him. They could do a multiple of things. So that was probably the best move to, you to know. To try and get the yeah, attention. Exactly. Yeah. And Randy was running towards the car, like kind of like waving his arms, like to stop the vehicle. And the men aren't stopping the vehicle. His nieces don't look happy. So I think some red flags are going off. When driving the car towards the town of Oakley, Trisha said that all of her survival instincts just completely kicked in. It was almost like she could focus better. She listened to everything the men said and thought about how she could use it. She watched where they were going and she thought about what they could do to get out of this situation, considering every possible outcome. While driving, Deli told the girls that they were driving all the way to New York, where they had contacts. And then they would fly the girls back to Utah first class. It's a weird plan. Um, also, where's this money coming from? That's expensive. That's very expensive. <laughs> um, it's also very expensive on gas. I don't know how you're going to get there you know, without having more money than $105. Well, also, obviously, there's going to be an APB put out on the vehicle. And you guys and the two girls that you have held captive after you've killed their whole family. So that's yeah. a pretty long drive to possibly get caught on. It's pretty dumb because not only do you have weapons on you, you're driving the car of the person that you just shot in the head twice, and you have his daughters. So it's going to be very hard for you to get, you know, far. I mean, I would imagine. I mean, it's a very strange plan. It, yeah, it is. Yes. So this is going to anger Lene, saying, like, oh, we'll fly you first class back home. And she said, no, you took away my home. You killed everyone I love, right? Her parents are dead. So is her grandmother. Family cabin now to them is burned to the ground. So she was kind of like, there is no way back from what you did to us. Yeah. But Lene was wrong. They had not killed everyone she loved. As they had been driving past their Uncle Randy in the car, Rolf Tita awoke from unconsciousness. He was still alive. He had been shot twice in the head. A thick pool of blood surrounded him, but all he could think of was his girls. He picked himself up off the garage floor in his t-shirt and jeans, and he made his way up the stairs into the house. Thinking all the while, I just need to protect them. He could see smoke and knew obviously that there were fires inside the cabin, but it seemed like it was not growing out of control. What Taylor failed to realize was that the house was so cold from all the doors being left open, as well as the patio door and the wood-burning stove not being lit, that the cold actually put out the fire that he had intended to start. There was still hot spots around the house, but nothing too serious. While Rolf made his way into the house, he had to pass through one of those hot spots. He attempted to put it out with his boot before he entered. It was basically right in the entryway, but his leg caught fire. So he had to run past the fire and get into the bathroom where he put his leg out in the shower. So now at this point, this man has been shot twice in the head and his leg has caught fire. Okay. I mean, this guy's like a modern day badass gladiator. He's like the Terminator right (laughs) now. He walked around the cabin looking for his girls, face swollen beyond recognition and blood pouring behind him everywhere he went. He saw the patio door was open and there were two bodies outside. His heart dropped and he ran to them. But it wasn't his daughter's. It was his wife and mother-in-law. A different kind of heartache sank into him. They had murdered his wife, his mother-in-law, 
tried to kill him. And now these monsters have his girls. So without another second's hesitation, Rolf took off back downstairs through the garage in his t-shirt and jeans and barely any vision in one eye. And he set off on the snowmobile down the mountain to get them back. Back in the car, Trisha was thinking of ways to get out of this situation. So she kept like envisioning things that she would do. Her plan was to ask to go to the bathroom. And while she was in the bathroom, she was going to break the mirror and like grab a piece and take it back into the car with her. And then she wanted to kind of like slit Taylor's throat with it while he was driving. So that was the plan that she was making in her head. She just said she remembered like kind of like playing through it over and over again. Like, if I do this, what will happen? Like, what will Deli do? When should I do it? Will the car flip? Should I grab this? Like, she kept trying to play all these like scenarios in her head. And the best thing she could come up with is asking to go to the bathroom because that could give her many ways to try and get out. So as they're entering into Oakley, there's a gas station that's going to come up and she says she needs to use the bathroom, but Taylor says that they're not going to stop. So her plan kind of just like goes out the window and she's uh, so upset by this. Yeah. You know, you're going to be able to drive from Utah to New York without stopping for the bathroom. bathroom. I mean, when we go to North Carolina, I got to go like seven times. I know my teacher bladder once guys and i'm really proud of this i went all the way from northern new jersey to the coast of north carolina like far like my parents live like closer to well well, my my mom was closer to like almost south carolina so i went the whole way didn't pee once i mean that is very impressive it's a teacher bladder and like i said when i when i uh, accompany you when we go oh my god you stop all the time yeah i'm like john i'm sorry i can't you know what it is you know what it is too like you know i always want something to drink or i know and then he wants to drink and then what do you have to do you got to stop and pee again no know. know. it's a vicious cycle it's hard it's hard when you want to eat something and drink something and time stops when you're on a road trip because you can pull off the road for 10 minutes and somehow it adds an hour to your driving time <laughs> it's you're true. like no, it's true. how did that even happen it's true <laughs> Okay, so at this point, Taylor in the car is beginning to rant. So he's he's just going on and on about like his kind of like beliefs with Satan. Um, him he's an evil person. Whenever he kills someone, it messes with his mind. Like he was just kind of like talking nonsense, and they're just all like listening to it. Like this guy's he's crazy, right? But then they also don't want to like make him upset because he's unstable and you don't know what he's gonna do. So at this point, poor Uncle Randy has no idea what's going on. His nieces couldn't be running off with some guys, right? Like they weren't like that. Plus, you would assume if two girls are going to be running off with like two boys they just met, they would seem a little happy, right? They wouldn't seem like so upset. Then he thought maybe they could have gotten into a fight with his brother and sister-in-law, but That also seemed really unlikely as the family was a really close-knit family and they were excited to spend Christmas together, especially because their grandmother on their mother's side was going to be able to like join in the festivities for the first time. So it's unlikely that a fight happened. So he was continuing to load up his snowmobile with all of his provisions and he heard something coming towards him. Sound of a snowmobile. He noticed that it was another one of his brother's snowmobiles and that the person driving it was only wearing a t-shirt and jeans, a death sentence in this weather. As the person got closer, he realized that they weren't wearing a red t-shirt. The shirt was supposed to be white, but it was covered in so much blood that it almost completely made the shirt red. Through the swollenness of the man's face, he recognized that it was his brother. Rolf convulsing at this point because of the cold. I mean, because you have to realize that it can be cold, period. But if you're on a snowmobile, the wind is going to make it so much colder. And the blood that was dripping from the open wounds in his head were now icicles dripping from his head. That's how cold it was. 
I mean, that's insane. Yes. I mean, could you imagine seeing your brother that way? No. His face is swollen. You can't even recognize him. His shirt's covered in blood. It's like, it's that. I can't, I can't believe. I couldn't imagine seeing my sibling like that. You know what I mean? So Randy quickly brought his brother into his car and put him in the back seat and covered him in a blanket. Rolf kept saying, they killed my wife. They killed my mother-in-law. They took the girls. They have the girls. And then everything clicked for Randy. It made sense. Right. I mean, how else would, you know, Randy have figured that out? You know what I mean? Like, that's a, I mean, it's a very weird, um, you know, circumstances. Series of events. Yeah, series of events. You know, it is a little odd, but... I mean, it was nothing, I don't think, that would have made him think that happened where people no. are being murdered and, and ki- being kidnapped. I completely agree with you. and it's But it's also, like, so wonderful that, not wonderful, but it's great that Randy saw what he saw because if he didn't see that and he just heard what his brother said, he wouldn't have been able to piece it together the way that he did. Right, and now we have somebody that can identify the two people and also let them know, hey, they're in this car. This is my brother's car. Exactly. So it's a good thing. Yeah. Well, you know, the whole situation's so shitty, but at least this is good. <laughs> it seems like it seems like luck is on the favor of this family. Absolutely. Right now. Yes. Um, for as much as it can be, obviously. So Randy drove as fast as he could in his car towards the direction of town. He did have his cell phone with him, but, I mean, flashback to 1990 cell phones. Um, there's barely any service in any part of the country. So I, he kept trying to dial 911, but there was no service. I mean, they're in a canyon at this point. So he was speeding. He needed to get his brother to a hospital and find a phone that was working. So the closest phone that he could probably get to would, would be that gas station in Oakley, the one that Trisha had thought about stopping at. He was actually traveling so fast that he caught up to his brother's blue town car. No way. Yes. So he was literally right there. And now he had been trying to call 911 for four miles. So he was able to catch up with them in their four mile span. Taylor and Taylor's driving the car and he's trying to be really careful about not going over the speed limit because he doesn't want to draw attention to himself. But Randy's going like 90 miles an hour. So that's how he was able to catch up with him. In the snow, no less. Well, no, neither. Oh. Just It's not, it hasn't been snowing. So there's no snow. It's like a clear day, but there was a storm coming. Oh, okay. Yeah. That would make things even crazier. I don't even think you could go 90 in the snow. No, no, I don't think <laughs> Unless so. Unless you're on a snowmobile. <laughs> yes. So... At this point, Randy is panicking. Like, what does he do? Should he run them off the road? Should he drive up next to them? Would that get his nieces killed? He doesn't know what to do. But luckily, his call goes through and he gets in contact with a 911 operator. And he tells the operator the entire story. Luckily, the operator believes him because this is unbelievable. And just as he was trying to describe where he was... The call went out. So the operator had told him not to approach the vehicle. So he chose to stop off at a gas station and asked to use their phone. So he connected again with 911 and he was told that there was a helicopter in the air looking for them and police in the area. So basically the helicopter was coming to pick up his brother because he was going to have to be transported by helicopter to the nearest hospital because he needed immediate medical attention. And there were cops in the area that were now looking for that vehicle. I mean, that's super lucky that they were able to do that and get everybody scrambled so quickly. Best case scenario. Yeah. Taylor and Deli had no idea what was going on. So they were sticking to their plan of driving the speed limit. At one point, a highway patrol officer pulled behind them, but passed them quickly. However, the APB for the vehicle must have just been released because the patrol car had made a left-hand turn to go in the opposite direction lane, and when the officers looked over across the barrier, they saw that there were four people inside the vehicle. So at his next opportunity, he made a U-turn, and he sped up to the town car with his lights on. So now what's happening in the car is that Taylor and Deli are fighting about who was the one that, like, 
tipped off the police. So they're basically already spiraling out of control. Like they know that they've been caught. So they lead police on a 10 mile high speed chase on the highway. Eventually, there were four highway patrol cars and five sheriff's deputies pursuing them. After the 10-mile mark, when they're at a kind of deserted stretch of highway where there's not a lot of, like, heavy traffic, the decision is made to shoot at the car. Taylor and Deli were fighting inside, so they kind of, they their minds were all over the place. And Taylor was having a hard time keeping control of the car because he was traveling at this point over 90 miles an hour and the car was being shot at. So he is going to lose control of the car several times, bashing into the guardrail at the divider. So his, the car is kind of going back and forth. And then finally the car tumbles off the highway and there was a extremely deep ravine. So when Trisha remembers this, she just says she all of a sudden felt like you do on a roller coaster when the roller coaster drops. Yeah. Like there was nothing there. Like it was like all like her whole body was just suspended and the car was rolling and all she could see was air. And she remembered thinking, this is how I'm going to die. Right. They don't know how far, how far down that fall is. But then suddenly the car hits the ground and it hits the ground upright. Wow. I mean, that's lucky. Yes. It's very lucky. Once the car lands, once everyone like kind of realizes what has happened, Taylor turns around and points his gun at Delhi, And he says, this was our pact. We said we'd never go back to prison. Are you ready to die? And Deli says, no, I'm going to try and get away. And he runs out of the car. So Taylor follows him. So now Taylor and Deli have left the car and they're hiding behind it. And the police officers are stationed in front. Like they basically all line up in front of the car. Trisha, because she's in the front seat, can see the officers getting ready to shoot at Deli and Taylor. So she turns around, grabs her sister's arm, and tells her to duck. So the two girls get as low as they possibly can, and there's a shootout happening, and they're right in the middle of it. There's bullets going through the car. The glass is breaking. There's bullets piercing the leather seats that they're sitting on. It's They could have died in that shootout. I mean, it's incredible that they didn't. And they didn't die. Wow. The next thing they know, there are police officers surrounding the car, yelling at them to get out with their hands up. And of course, they quickly realized the girls were the hostages and that they're not involved in this crime. So they allowed them to just hold and comfort each other. While feet away, Taylor and Deli were kneeling on the ground in handcuffs. And this is when an infuriated Lene ran up to them I mean, obviously she was caught by an officer before she could actually physically attack them. But she kept yelling at the officers to kill them now. Shoot them now while we have them. They killed my parents and my grandmother. Trisha remembered not being angry like her sister was, but relieved that it was all over and that they had made it out alive. Right? That was her plan the whole time. Like, we just have to survive this. So while the girls were being transported to a hospital in the backseat of a cop car... Together, they heard over the radio that their mother and grandmother were dead on arrival, but that Rolf Tita was 10 minutes out in the helicopter headed to a trauma hospital. He was in critical condition. Overjoyed with the fact that there was hope for their father, the girls clasped hands and began praying for his survival. The girls were reunited with their Uncle Randy at the hospital and ran into his arms, finally feeling some kind of safety and thanked him for all that he had done. Well, we don't know if it was the prayers of his daughters or Rolf's determination to see them again, but a miracle happened. Rolf survived his attack, survived being shot twice in the face, second degree burns on his legs and hypothermia. And he got to be with his daughters again. Taylor and Deli had failed at taking him from them. 
The girls say that their father is their hero, and so is their uncle Randy. They had saved their lives. When police searched the house, which was not badly burned at all because of the cold, they found a lot of evidence that linked Taylor and Deli to the cabin. But most damning of all was that VHS tape labeled Christmas 1990. Doesn't that sound like a, like a clip from the movie VHS? Yeah, it does, actually. Yeah, um, it's just, to me, this is so crazy because this is right out of like a, a movie. This whole entire yeah. thing could be a movie. It's like when when you're watching a movie and someone that gets shot twice in the head somehow comes back alive and you're like there's no way that guy would survive that well he did yeah and um you know everyone's different but i you know and their beliefs and i always of course i'll always respect that but i have to say whether you believe in these things or not there were other forces at work that day i think based on what happened because oh, there's yeah. no way i mean there is i shouldn't say there's no way but the fact that he was the father was able to get up and get to their you know the uncle and try to get to his kids that were kidnapped and after everything that happened i mean that in itself i mean it's a miracle it's a miracle i mean of course there were lives lost but the fact that he was able to do what he did it is unbelievable yeah and i'm and i'm glad that he survived you know that and that's why we chose to do this episode on father's day because like holy crap what a father what a father right right? (laughs) So Taylor pled guilty to two counts of murder and was sentenced to the death penalty. Deli was convicted of two counts of second-degree murder. He is serving a life sentence. When they were sentenced, the family was not present in court, but Ralph made a statement saying that although he felt justice would never be completely served, he's happy that these two men could never hurt another family. The Tita family fixed and refurbished the cabin. And the girls have continued the tradition of bringing their families together two or three times a year. They were not going to allow Taylor and Deli to steal that away from them either. Rolf died at the age of 79 of pancreatic cancer. Because of his bravery on December 21st, 1990, he was able to walk his daughters down the aisle at their weddings and see the birth of his grandchildren. Trisha said that her father died peacefully the way he was meant to. There's one recent addition to this story. In March of 2019, Taylor's death sentence was overturned through the process of appeals. The ruling was that Taylor's public defender did not provide an adequate defense for his client. The judge stated that the lawyer gave inexcusably uninformed advice that led Taylor into entering a guilty plea, which led to the death sentence. So Vaughn Taylor is off death row, but he's still sentenced to life in prison. So it doesn't mean he's getting out of prison. He's just not on death row anymore. Okay. And um, the state of Utah, I think, currently has now, because he was taken off, seven members on death row. So. That's, wow. Okay. Not a lot. So, not a lot, yeah. Wow. So that just shows how, you know, I mean, obviously the sentencing judge and how the state felt about this crime being committed and how unbelievably callous and horrific it was. Because when you hear the stories of the survivors, they are going to say, in no way is Taylor remorseful for anything that happened that day. He showed it, right? His callous attitude in the video I mean, what, come on, what more evidence do you need of someone not being remorseful for what has taken place? Exactly. So, I mean, that's a story of survival and a man loving, loving his daughters. Right. That's true. So, although it's tragic, it does have a little bit of of a good ending. You know what I mean? It's true. Yeah, it does. Okay, so now we're going to take the time to thank our Patreons. We want to let you guys know that at whatever level that you're donating to us. We are so unbelievably thankful to you. And this show is only made possible because of you. It's true. So thank you. Thank you to Sarah Koopman, Amanda Massey, Martine Beaumont, Natalie Leah, Anna Batchelor, Secret ASMR, Lila Olafsdatar, Stacy Moby, Mary Fran McAuliffe, Beth McKenzie, Sabra, 
Minya Olaminen, Jennifer Cowles, Eileen Snyder, Nick Baca upped his pledge to $10. Thanks, Nick. Aaron Hunt, Elena Spaulding, Jamie Dobbins, Zachary Horvath, Kristen upped her pledge to $10. Thank you for that. And Elizabeth Becker upped, upped her pledge to $5. So thank you guys for that's basically like our end of June contributors. We might get a few more. And if we do, of course, we'll thank you in our next episode, which is going to come out around the 4th of July. Yeah. Awesome time. Yes. So, guys, thank you so much for listening, as always. Um, if you ever want to reach out to us, you can do that at truecrimecouple at gmail.com. And again, if you want to join Patreon, you can do that at patreon.com slash truecrimecouple. Thanks, guys. All right. Bye, guys.